Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Jack Luke, the assistant editor on BikeRadar.com, and today I'm joined by Simon Bromley, a freelance writer for us and our resident tech nerd at the moment. Hi. Hi, Jack. How's it going? Very well. I'm very excited to say that today we're going to talk about road tech that was way ahead of its time. That is correct. Two millennials <laughs> talking about retro tech. I'm sure that will upset you all. We're just going to get right into things and start off with Simon. So we're going to start with uh, Mavic Zap. And I think you probably have all heard of Mavic Zap. It's basically electronic shifting from 1992 which is obviously far, far before DI2 came onto the market. That wasn't until 2009. And that was developed by, like you said, Mavic, who were, in back in the day, a big player in the group set market. Yep, that's right. Yeah, I, obviously better known for wheels nowadays, but, but back then they used to make group sets. And this group set was you know, used at the Tour de France. Boardman famously won the Tour Prologue in 1997 using Mavic Zap. Um, just didn't really catch on outside of the professional professional circles though it was for a number of reasons though it wasn't necessarily a, a flawed system it was just you know like we say ahead of its time and what were the kind of primary disadvantages of that well i think yeah, i think you could only sort of shift one sprocket at a time and you know that that it's not always a problem but if you know if you're making sort of sharp turns onto steep hills that can become a problem sometimes the the shifting was quite slow so i've read i've read i've not used it like you said i'm a millennial um <laughs> I've read that it could take between half a second, maybe even up to two seconds to shift. Not so great. Not ideal in a race situation. Yeah, so I think as well, you know, afterwards, they, when they tried to update it, they released their kind of Mectronic group set, which was a wireless electronic group set. And I think that was a bit of a step backwards and that kind of killed it. Yeah, I think the original system was actually quite elegant in the way that it worked, where kind of very, very briefly, DI2 essentially works to push the chain up and down the cassettes and the chain rings, whereas uh, the Zap group set essentially used the ramps and sh uh, ramps and machining on the cassette with just a little nudge from the derailleur to kind of perform those shifts. It was actually quite an elegant system, and the original one was very compact. But like you say, the uh, Mectronic one was a little bit more bulky. Yeah, I've, because they went to wireless... You know, which was, seems like a great step. And obviously we've got ETAP these days. And it, but actually that increased the size of the motors and the size of the batteries and, and all of that sort of stuff that they, you know, they weren't able to make them smaller. And I think it also led to reliability issues. Like I've heard sort of things about um, people with speed guns being able to stop the system from working, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, not, I guess not a regular problem, but a problem nevertheless. Yeah. And I, I think that's the thing though, you know, if we look at it, you can see a lot of how road tech has been shaped by that development since then. Like we said, 1992 for the original system, then 1999 for the following one. I mean, that is that is light years really That's a ahead. long time ago, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a shame to see that one eventually just kind of fall off the face of the earth, but it was certainly far, far ahead of its time. Now moving on to the next one, this one's perhaps not as obvious as a kind of a key tech development. I'm definitely going to let Simon take the lead on this one. He's a bit of a, a fetishist when it comes to uh, <laughs> these sorts of things. So I'll let you take this one, Simon. Yeah, so this one is uh, paraffin wax for bicycle chains. Um, and it used, you know, used to be really, really popular back in the day before kind of commercial drip lubes were available. Um, 
And it's actually had a real resurgence, uh, especially at the top level of the sport. And, you know, we've seen, we saw a lot of people in the tour and then the bigger races last year, especially in the time trials, using wax chains from companies like Ceramic Speed. And essentially, you know, it, it, paraffin wax is what it's candle wax and, and you melt it down and you put a, cl a clean chain mm -hmm. into it and the wax basically works its way in, in between all the spaces of the little rollers and the little pins and forms a very hard surface once it dries and that just reduces the friction because there's no longer any kind of metal to metal contact. It also dries very dry mm -hmm. so it doesn't attract contamination which is obviously a key thing in in racing because if you are attracting any kind of dirt or muck in there you're only going to increase drag that's right yeah and so you know it it, it kind of it went away because I, I guess because commercial drip lubes mm. became available and and you know they had a lot of marketing behind mm -hmm. them and then those these companies said it would be easier and better to just drip oil onto your chain mm -hmm. But the reality, you know, as we all know, the reality of drip lubes is that they're wet and they attract contaminants. And, that, you know, they also, they don't, it's very hard to get that lubricant into the pins mm. and the rollers where it really matters. Matters, yeah. yeah. So, so that, this is a big one. And, and it's not just, you know, it's not just about friction. It's also about drivetrain life mm -hmm. as well. You know, reducing friction wears down your parts, mm -hmm. costs you more money. Mm hmm so yeah, we're seeing kind of like a resurgence of this in the pro peloton. Like you said, it was it was very popular back in the day. But at the end of the day, for racing is performance, which is the key metric by which all things are measured. And like yeah, exactly, what, what what would you expect to gain or lose? I should say in terms of drag with a wax chain compared to a regular one. So I mean, ceramics. You know, companies like Ceramic Speed will say about three to five watts. Which, which is not insignificant. Not insignificant at all. And But that's against, you know, a kind of perfectly clean standard drip lube mm -hmm. um, setup, you know, that a, a kind of pro would run thanks to their mechanic who cleans their bike fastidiously every night. <laughs> like us, of course. Oh, yeah. Titans like, yeah. of the industry. Well, like me personally. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're kind of an average user who's perhaps, you know, not taking that much care of your bike, you, the difference could be closer to 10, maybe 15 watts. And actually having a wax chain you know because it doesn't attract those contaminants you actually don't need to clean your bicycle as often so uh, you know i've seen people saying that you can get sort of 300 400 miles out of a chain before you have to then sort of strip it down mm. re-wax it and do all that stuff again and that's it's not too bad no and it certainly reduces that kind of uh certainly this time of year winter you know it just makes your life that bit easier and you're gonna get more riding done and less bike cleaning done absolutely um so yeah i think that's when we're going to see a huge kind of uh, resurgence with it was interesting i remember um maybe kind of end of last year we saw something from Muckoff, which was essentially a cheaper version of their really high-end mm. low friction chains so i think from a consumer point of view we are going to see more of these kind of performance benefits coming in yeah absolutely and it started with smaller companies uh so you had sort of Zero friction cycling. Uh, I think Friction Facts was mm -hmm. bought by Ceramic Speed they were. a few years ago. And, um, you know, you've got companies like Watchshop in the UK doing these things. And, yeah, Muck Office, you know, they were they were apparently involved in Bradley Wiggins. It's our mm -hmm. record, if, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Um, 
you know, if you buy any, if you buy a kind of compliance for anything outside of cycling, it always comes with, you know, energy efficiency Mm -hmm. ratings, but bicycles don't really have that sort of thing. But actually, you know, if efficiency is a big, a big part of it, I mean, certainly, you know, maybe we'll have gearboxes in the future. Oh, don't. You make me me blush. (laughs) You might have seen that article on bikeradar.com. If not, head over. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, yeah, efficiency and and reducing friction is, 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 you, you can't really see it. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's why it doesn't get the attention it deserves, but it's a it's a massive part of the equation. And it was, yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And it isn't seen and we're reaching this point. And you'll see a lot of this through our kind of suggestions where, you know, bike tech has reached this real pinnacle. Bikes are better than they've ever been. So if you want to be cynical about it, it's what can we be marketed on next? And, you know, wax chains, like you said, were one of these things that have been forgotten. So I, I think, yeah, that's probably a really good point. We're likely to see it from a consumer point back again. Yeah. and and But I think as well, you know, the recipes for mm-hmm. these things are actually available online too. So if you don't, you know, if you think this is just something that the bike industry wants to sell you, mm-hmm. it's, it's entirely possible to just go buy the ingredients off Amazon mm-hmm. and do it yourself. Well, so... Maybe a subject for another time. <laughs> I'd like to watch a video of you cooking a chain. Anyway, <laughs> moving on, we have, and this is a really good one. It's actually almost relevant, given that we've seen them again this year at the top echelons of cycling, but lightweight carbon wheels, as in the brand lightweight. That's right, yeah. So, the, and famously, the fir- their first carbon, carbon composite wheels were made in a garage and they carried Bjarne Reese. Um, who was nicknamed the Eagle from Herning or Mr. 60%, depending on your point of view. They carried him to Tour Victory in 1996 mm-hmm. and sort of very quickly became iconic. I mean, you know, next year you had Ulrich on them. Uh, you know, Lance Armstrong wanted them. He, they famously told Lance Armstrong that he had to pay for his Everybody wheels. pays. Everybody pays, even Lance Armstrong. <laughs> so... Yeah, they've had a bit of um, they've had a bit of a comeback recently, but back then they were a real game changer, you know. And amongst the sea of kind of box section aluminium aluminium rims, you know, they had an aero V shaped profile, fifty millimeters deep. Yeah, really radical at the time. Ra- super lightweight. Mm. You know, there there was nothing else on the market like it's. But you know, carbon spokes, carbon hubs. Yeah, bonded in one piece as well. That's another key thing. Yeah. You were seeing like aero profiles with alloy rims at that point, but just the, the actual construction of this was crazy compared to anything before. Yeah, I mean, you know, even now, mm. even now, we, you know, how how many companies are making completely carbon wheels? You mm. know, apart from the hub internals, obviously. You know, they're, so there's, you know, and like you said, we saw Ineos, mm-hmm. Team Ineos, uh, using them at the Tour de France last year. That caused quite a stir. It certainly did. I think I, I'm going to make the number up, but it was, it was something mad, like fifty grand they spent on wheels as a team to get these super lightweight wheels. Yeah, so that would have been about ten pairs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but looking at the, you know, if you compare the profile of those wheels to a modern aero wheel, they are they're pretty old school. That kind of V shape is relatively well, supposedly relatively uh, non-aerodynamic compared to more modern blunt shapes. So the fact that they're still producing this and, you know, one of the most successful teams ever will make that kind of investment in a wheel shape that's pretty much unchanged since they first introduced is is pretty radical. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, the whole wide wheel thing ki- came about because, you know, wheel manufacturers, I suppose, were trying to design wheels that worked at higher yaw angles. Mm-hmm. But if you're a pro cyclist riding in the Tour de France mm-hmm. at 
50, 60, mm. 70 kilometers per hour, actually the yaw angles you're experiencing are quite narrow. So I think for those guys, these wheels can still be really fast. And, you know, I think Ineos were probably thinking that, uh, that they wanted to make a difference mm. to how the bikes felt on the really steep climbs. Say, yeah, a good, on the, good psychological advantage. Yeah, on the Planche de Belfi. And, and, I, and I, I, you know, I've spoken to people who've ridden lightweights. Of course, I, you know, on my lowly freelance salary cannot afford them. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the people who I've known who've ridden lightweights have said they feel incredible. Because yeah. I think because of that full carbon construction, those massive thick carbon spokes, they just feel amazing. Yeah, And feel is probably almost as important as anything else. Yeah, it probably is. You know, I think at, the t- at that top level, believing in your equipment and also making everyone else look around and, and sort of go, or oh, they've got six grand wheels mm. and we can't have them. Yeah. You know, I, maybe that 2% psychological placebo mm. maybe had a big effect. Yeah. So buy yourself success. <laughs> that's, the, that's the way to winning. Absolutely. Uh, moving on to the next one, we're going to be a little bit more brief with this, is the Shimano AX group set. Now, this was originally released in 1981 and it was the first, and actually really thinking about it, pretty much the only complete group set has ever been marketed as being aero. Now, obviously, with modern components, standalone components, you see things like aerodynamic brakes, you see covered cranks, that sort of thing. But what was interesting about AX was the whole group set was marketed as being considered from an aero perspective. And that in itself was groundbreaking. But the fact it was in 81 that they were considering this is, you know, was pretty groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is before anyone really had any ideas about aero bike frames, for example. Mm. So all of these components were designed for (laughs) skinny tube steel bikes, Mm. which probably weren't too bad in a wind tunnel because they're so thin. But we obviously know that cylinders are not are not great in a wind tunnel. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, I I find I think with this one, it's really hard to know why it it sort of went away because it, it, intuitively it makes a lot of sense. I I guess people just didn't care about aerodynamics. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Shimano has a history of developing stuff seemingly for the sake of just doing it. A good example from the mountain bike side would be Shimano Airlines, which was famously their group set, which was powered by compressed air, <laughs> of all things. Absolutely. So, I mean, AX didn't see massive commercial success, but it's kind of like a a watershed point for aero being considered in all aspects of bikes, although, like you say, not so much in frames at that point, I think it's a really interesting thing to look back on. And I think there's definitely an area we're going to see more development in in the future. Yeah, I think I'd certainly like to see more uh, development in that area in the future. I think, like you said, you know, bikes are kind of, road bikes especially, are kind of reaching a, a sort of pinnacle and group sets especially mm. it's hard to see you know other than you know dura ace adding a 12 sprocket it's hard to see what more they're going to do with the i2 it's true yeah so you know maybe aerodynamic shaping is the next thing mm-hmm. could well be could- and, and you know it's easy to be cynical about this stuff Re- i mean really for the majority yeah people, it doesn't really matter but you must remember that pretty much all developments in bikes are kind of start at the top and trickle their way down so to see aero considered more in group sets i don't think could be a bad thing for anyone but it's certainly something i'm interested like you say that it's not really been pursued anymore 
Yeah, I think it. You know, it, it, as you say, this is this is kind of one of those really kind of marginal gains. But mm. a marginal gain is still a gain, and and mm. if if it you know if it doesn't cost anything mm. in terms of maybe it will, it will cost in terms of money as we know, but it won't it won't necessarily cost in anything in terms of performance. Mm. Then you know why not have the components shaped aerodynamically to complement your aerodynamic bike? Mm. It it still sort of seems to make intuitive sense, and it you know it's a kind of. It's one of the, it's, this is one of those products that I forget exists until we kind of do something like this. And then I remember and I go, oh, why doesn't anyone do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, As a total aside, and this is really my kind of, uh, my <laughs> side of things, but that group set was also one of the very, very last that Shimano produced that included a seat post. As yeah. part of the group set, there was this wonderful era, pretty much forever, where a group set would include a seat post, a headset, and even in some cases, it would include dropouts, which I just love the idea of yeah. you buy this beautiful box with all these parts, including dropouts, take them to your artisan bike builder <laughs> down the road, and he builds you this incredible, uh, complete bike from the ground up. So yeah, last of an era from that perspective too. And our last one, this is probably, I dare say, the most relevant of all of these on here um, is the RockShox Roubaix fork. Now, the Roubaix fork, which later became the Ruby in further developments, was essentially uh, a development of RockShox's very famous Mag 20 and 21 mountain bike fork ported to the road to be used in the race which it took its name from. So... Paris-Roubaix is a very, very rough cobbled race and it made sense to introduce suspension. And on the face of it, it was an incredibly successful fork taking three wins, which is pretty remarkable. And it makes perfect sense, really. Yeah, I think, you know, we've had this kind of conversation before and I think it always comes back to that thing you where you wouldn't ever buy a car without suspension. Mm. So why don't road bikes have suspension? Mm-hmm. And... I think the answer is probably that we don't like the look of it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because <laughs> um, it looks really rubbish. And and I, I think you know this this I, this is another product that I haven't ridden. Mm-hmm. You know, I have ridden obviously suspension forks on a mountain bike, and you know they work really well. Yeah, um, but I've not ridden it on a road bike, and and I and I guess people, you know, they they think it's going to slow them down in a sprint. Mm-hmm. They think it's going to slow them down in general. Yeah. And they don't, I suppose they don't really think about the fact that actually it increases your traction. Yeah. And that increases your speed. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it won it won three times at Paris-Roubaix. Yeah. So and it's worth saying as well, it won in what was essentially, you know, it was a pretty simple take on the concept. Mm. Like, you know, it's easy to think of suspension on road bikes and you think, oh, it's a mountain bike with skinny tires. But who's to say in time that we're not going to see some weird development? Lauf just did that patent for that kind of leaf spring That's uh, right. based system. You know, so, you know, it, it's easy to point at the Roubaix fork and see its flaws. And there were some, and I'll kind of cover those in a minute. But actually, as a concept, suspension road bikes, I think is really sound. And I'm amazed it hasn't been developed further from that point, in particular at the Roubaix. You know, the, the one example you could point to of being quite successful in the mainstream would be the specialized Roubaix, but that's quite a different take on the concept. Yeah. So obviously on the specialized Roubaix, this sort of suspension sits above um, the head tube mm-hmm. between the stem and essentially suspends the handlebars. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm not a suspension expert, so I don't know 
what the benefit or negative over suspending the handlebars versus suspending the fork is. Essentially, with a fork, if it was located on the fork, you can introduce uh, losses through compressing the suspension as you're riding. So, you know, it has that feeling of being kind of draggy. But like you say, if you are suspending the bike rather than the rider, you're going to increase traction and reduce how rough the ride is, which has also benefits in terms of rider fatigue because you lose a lot through being rattled around on cobbles for hours on end. And it is really good, the Roubaix system, but I just think that kind of, you know, I'm not going to say simple, but kind of traditional suspension setup for road bikes is a development I think we're going to see more of. Yeah, and I think Pinarello sort of tried something, Mm. didn't they, with the suspension on the... um what was it called? The Dogma K8? Dogma K-S, yeah, I think something, so, something like, like that. that. And, and, you know, they, they had it at the rear and then also underneath at the top of the, at the fork crown. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, they, Sky, no one from Sky One, so I guess <laughs> it couldn't have been good. Um, you know, the funny thing about that is it was electronically controlled, if I remember correctly. And mm-hmm. there, there's a little bit of, you know, adding all of these motors. You've got DI2 motors and mm-hmm. motors for suspension on, you know, at what point does a... How many motors does a bicycle have to have before it becomes a motorbike? Yeah. And, and you know, it's so funny. there's something there. But yeah, it, it it's this is probably one of those things that after we've sorted out disc brakes, yeah, and we're all settled. Like you know, this is now the bike that I will keep forever. The industry will go. Hang on, <laughs> we've got a full suspension road bike. Um, and your old road bike is now obsolete yeah, and irrelevant. Just and we'll all bin. have to scrap for our road bikes, as we do as every we single do. time. Yeah. And buy a whole new system. And that will probably mean faster riding. Well, hopefully. On the subject of the kind of the issues with the original Roubaix fork, it's funny you mentioned the sprinting. What was interesting with the Roubaix was it was, like I said, the Mag 21 that had been modified. And all that really meant was that the crown between the, or, yeah, the crown between the um, the two fork legs themselves was much, much higher than the typical uh, mountain bike one to mount a caliper brake. Bear in mind, this was built with rim brakes because that's all mm. there was at the time. Um, and in a sprint, it was said that each of those legs could actually move independently, <laughs> which created a really horrible ride feel because as one went up, you would increase stiction in the other fork legs and then it would kind of eventually release and it had this really strange ride quality. But like I said, it won three races at the time. So it kind of been that yeah, It's hard to argue mm. with, with those kind of results. I mean, obviously it was, you know, it was being ridden by the best team of the era. Yeah. But it's hard to argue with the results, mm. isn't it? And I think, I think they, you know, it kind of, it really, they only stopped using it because I believe Bianchi said they weren't allowed to. Yes. And actually Mappe went to, or Mappe, sorry, went on to dominate the next six years of the race and Conago, their bike sponsor, <laughs> forbade them oh, from using Conago, it. not yeah. Bianchi. I think it was, it was a, the original ones that they were one on. I think they were Bianchi's. It was okay. Conago who went on to say, no, you cannot. So, right. you know, there was no media interest in them. Yeah. So commercial interest, I guess, would have evaporated. So who's to say, maybe it would have gone further had they not dominated those next few races. Yeah, I think we're going to see a resurgence in it, but it doesn't matter what young Simon and I think. At the end of the day, it's up to you, our darling listeners. And we'd love to let us know what you think of our suggestions. If you're on bikeradar.com, let us know in the comments on there. If you're on YouTube, of course, let us know there as well what you think of our suggestions. 
But otherwise, don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you choose to listen to our dulcet tones on. And if you're on YouTube, don't forget to hit that bell icon as well so that every time we upload a video or podcast like this, you will get a notification. Thank you, Simon, and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.